Hello and welcome to Becoming Educated, the podcast that aims to find out the secrets to great teaching in our classrooms. I'm Darren Leslie, and this week I am joined by Alex Quigley. Alex is a former English teacher and school leader of over 15 years standing who now works for the Education Endowment Foundation, supporting teachers to access research evidence. Alex can be found on Twitter at Alex J. Quigley and blogs at theconfidentteacher.com. He is the author of The Confident Teacher, Closing the Vocabulary Gap and Closing the Reading Gap. In this episode, Alex and I explore the vital importance of reading in our schools and Alex clearly articulates why it should be the number one school improvement priority. In this episode, we discuss the following and so much more. The history of reading and writing systems and why they are important for us to know about. What the science of reading tells us on how we should teach reading. How teachers can develop reading comprehension in their classrooms. Academic and disciplinary reading and how they are different within within each subject discipline. Discussing the topic of reading with Alex has served to only sharpen my own thinking and I came away with so many notes to unpick. So without further ado, let's dive right in to my interview with Alex Quigley. Alex, thank you so much for joining me on the Becoming Educated podcast today. How are you? Uh, good evening. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm good. It's been a, a busy day, um, but o- always happy to talk about reading. Oh, lovely! And it's such a such a pertinent topic just now, given the the debates that are that are still ongoing. Um, such mm. a fascinating fascinating debate. So, as you mentioned, we're going to talk about reading today because I, I've not long finished reading uh, both of your two of your three books. Um, Closing the vocabulary gap and closing the reading gap that have really struck a chord with me and helped with my own knowledge and understanding. So thank you for that. And I'm delighted to have you on to explore some of the themes there. But before we, we get going with that, can you share with the, the listeners just a little bit about you and your career to date up to this point, please? Sure. So, so about 20 years ago, um, I got a job as a teacher in York in a large secondary school. Huntington School, uh, waded through the first few years, um, found it a challenge, um, but then seemed to emerge into kind of come up for a, um, ended up with a, a middle leader job um, leading a, a large English department. And then I think social media kind of happened and got engaged with kind of educational voices on Twitter and um, started to get more and more interested in what people had to say and and delving into research evidence and and actually probably had a bit of a second career kind of thinking writing about teaching um, moved into senior leadership and and tried to put it into practice do good things um, school went well and more and more I ended up doing projects outside of school um, working with you know groups of schools in you know scunthorpe and blackpool and just just places all around and and i think just step by step i moved away from the classroom and ended up talking more and more about topics like reading about about using evidence about vocabulary and the more research i did and the more i wrote about it i think the more people found that that 
well, was useful. Um, and so what happened, I, we had a, uh, an EF research school at Huntington um, just over five years ago. So I headed that up. Um, but I actually ended up joining the Education Endowment Foundation. I kind of just more and more, I found I, I found this niche about translating evidence into practice because I'd worn, you know, worn the shoes in the classroom, worked across secondaries, but across lots of schools of all different phases and and was always curious about different subjects, different phases, different um, practices and debates. Um, so, uh, yeah, ended up um, joining the EF and and. Still, as a sideline, uh, I write books in the evenings and on the corner corners of Sunday nights, um, and I've got into a bit of a habit of that. And and I think the more I've done that, the more I've kind of delved into literacy a bit more broadly. And and to be honest, you know, you start teaching and you're expected after a few months of a PGCE or similar that you know you know the majority of this. And I think it's only now that I'm recognising just how much I didn't know. It's probably probably good actually um in the first instance given you know just grappling with the complexities of the classroom but i think now i feel like literacy is you know an area i want to communicate with more teachers about and reading vocabulary writing talk you know they really are the fundamentals of of, of school and um you know we'll probably go on to questions about it but just gonna it's just so fundamental to people's success um and you know on a personal note i come from a family where I'm part of first generation to go to university, um, you know, doing well at school was really important for me and, and to allow me opportunities that my parents didn't get, you know, in reality. So for me, it, it, there's a real moral purpose around reading and vocabulary and writing because actually they are the tools of school success and some children get gifted them with ease and, and others don't. And, and I'm, you know, passionate about that. You know, certainly I'd echo that last because I'm very similar that I'm first in my family to go off to, to university. And, you know, I think moving forward, myself and my partner have children, they'll be born into um, opportunity. Um, and it's, as you mentioned, it's it's a moral purpose that everyone has that. So such a, I love that um, move from, from the school in Huntington into the EEF. And the EEF published some absolutely fantastic resources that have really helped me in my work as a teaching and learning lead. So thank you there. Um, as you mentioned, we're going to dive into reading. I'm going to start off with quite a big question. Um, can I ask you, Alex, how important is reading and why should teachers in schools prioritise reading? I. I regularly argue that I can't think and would like to be convinced that there's any more important school improvement priority than reading. I just cannot think of an alternative because when we think about things like curriculum, well, reading is the gateway to the curriculum. If we think about pedagogy, where well, you cannot think about teaching in the classroom without mediating the language we use in the classroom. And, and we know that so many of the challenges and particularly you know, as children move through school, that task of reading, that infinitely complex task that we amazingly, our brain often makes look so easy, that gets harder and harder. And ultimately, we know the match between those people who read successfully, confidently, habitually. They they do better in school, you know, and the correlation, the match is so close, so strong that it, it's incontrovertible. I don't think anyone denies that you know, reading's a master skill and so crucial for school success. And yet we also know that lots of children 
never quite become successful leaders. You know, from from a really young age, we identify challenges before children get to school because we know early talk, early readings, so, so definitive to almost getting your hook into the school curriculum and 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 you know getting involved and, and understanding it and building those foundations. And then we also know, you know, up to a quarter of pupils going into secondary school, they're not really you know, ready for that onslaught of academic language and the different types of reading activities they're going to get. I think, you know, along with myself, you know, there's an irony of English teachers that assumes kind of knowledge and confidence. But I think most teachers of older students, you know, open, openly recognize they're not sure what to do if a pupil's struggling with reading. They kind of, you know, that's that happens earlier with other people. And so, you know, I think it's crucial at secondary school. It's the gateway to the secondary school curriculum. And, and so I can't think of any phase where it's not essential. I can't think of, you know, of any reason why it wouldn't be right there at the top of the tree for school improvement. So, yeah, it, it opens up the doors. And, you know, you talk about university. Well, you know, what what is the, the gateway if not to be able to, you know, be able to read and access all that complex language, be able to write about it? So it's just so fundamental no it's certainly and you can you can see in, in from even my experience in the classroom even today I, the, some children that struggle with reading you can see how difficult they find all aspects of their curriculum so it's so so yeah, important yeah. can i see then alex are there any stats on how many children currently read or, or have access to books that would really help them yeah so there's quite a lot of statistics and i think Often we need this full picture of, okay, what's the big picture evidence? What are the statistics? What are the practices that relate to that? What can we do about it? What are the you know things we can change in the classroom and outside the school gates? I think the, the National Literacy Trust do regular surveys of pupils. And in those surveys, it's around one in 11 uh, disadvantaged children own a single book and, and not too many more, um, you know, of, of children generally own a book so there's something of a of a shift over time in terms of book ownership now again book ownership does not confer you're going to do well or badly in school but for me it's a bit of a canary in the coal mine if you don't have easy access to books you probably there's a prob- probably a parallel with technology laptops and you know, we've seen that the last two years in terms of access to wi-fi and technology well well access to books for me is that indicator of a literate environment that your parents are able to help with with homework they're able to you know hold conversations about your your schoolwork and some of the cultural you know things we take for granted that are clothing the school curriculum so i think that indicator for me of book ownership is quite significant and then there seems to be um, a pattern in terms of reading success that kind of runs through schools so one of the things we see about there's around a quarter of pupils in SATs don't make the expected standard for reading. And you can argue about the expected standard and children just below it and the, and the you know, the vagaries of that assessment. But then we also know that, you know, from large scale you know, reading age assessments from the likes of GL, they did a report of over 300,000 children in England. And that showed of those 15 year olds, you know, a quarter of them had a reading age of 12. So straight away, you're seeing this a quarter could be more in any given school it could be less in any given school but you see a large number of children who don't flourish with reading and given it's so fundamental to 
you know, all the aspects of school success, that's a jarring problem. And when you match that up with things like reading habitually, when you match that up with book ownership, you know, we see this connected web, you know, that builds up a pretty firm picture about trends and, and kind of, you know, issues that we're grappling with. And they're not new, you know, they, they far preceded, you know, the pandemic. The pandemic just shines a light on mm. some of these, you know, differential experiences, you know, and even more broadly, you know, we have around 7 million adults who are functionally illiterate. So, you know, the reality of that is they didn't flourish in reading in school. They didn't get those choices, you know, in terms of, you know, professional careers, university, certain apprenticeships. They, they didn't have that choice um, to go down that route. So, you know, there are some bleak statistics and, and they paint a pretty clear picture that this should be a priority. Um, it, and it always is. I'm not saying we're not working at it. But I think that, you know, there's a there's a concerted effort, I think, that needs to be made from policymakers culturally, you know, a, as well as the work we do in schools. And and one of the things could be about joining up across phases. But again, that needs support. That needs policy support. That needs funding. So, you know, I think there's, yeah, there's a pretty clear picture about reading. Certainly. And, and it does read quite bleak, especially that last one about seven million adults functionally that's frightening in, in a in a country yeah. as as rich in resources as yeah as the united kingdom so that, that is pretty interesting so we dive into some kind of more of the kind of science behind reading and and the thinking behind reading and some of the stuff that mainly come out of your closing the reading gap book yeah and over the over the last few months i've read quite a lot of books about reading and what strikes me most is that they tend to start with a history of reading and writing systems so what, what do we need to know about reading's long history and how does that inform us now in 2022? Yeah, so I have to say I really enjoy writing about the history of reading and writing systems. I'm a frustrated history teacher, I think, in truth. Um, but beyond that pleasure, I think, I think it's really important to understand where we've come from and, and you can really you know, learn lessons from the trends over time. So if we go all the way back, to ancient Sumeria, you know, for over 4,000 years ago, we can see that children were learning cuneiform letter by letter. They were breaking it down. They were using, you know, clay slates, turning them over, using look of a right check, flawed a model as that has ever been. It's about 4,000 years old. Um, and I think we can see that the, the basic units, so now, we, you know, the focus on phonics and and blending letters and sounds. I think the challenges have always been there around those basic fundamentals. And also, you know, if you go all the way back to that kind of child just forming those cuneiform letters, actually that there's always this you know, dual challenge of reading and writing. That actually they're two of the most complex processes the human brain can can process. And it makes us, you know, the the beings we are beyond the, the animal kingdom because we've got these super skills. And I think we can learn along the way. And I think even, so I've been more recently looking at writing development and you look at the likes of the Roman system and, and famous teachers who started to formalize the approaches to writing like Quintilian in, in ancient Rome. And what they show is they started to standardize a structure for writing and for reading. And, and we see now, we see echoes of it still with rhetoric and, and some of those kind of, 
um, approaches to really naming things, to be explicit about teaching them, to break down the act of writing and reading to its component parts and build it up again. If, if we even fast forward to medieval times where, you know, perhaps less systematic and we had small numbers of, of you know, religious clerics and monks who were writing, even that tiny number, the likes of how you taught reading and writing was, again, really disciplined. So r- breaking it right down to individual letters, but then even the act of note-taking as you read was a really structured process. It was really carefully, you know, structured and, and there was high expectations that that was how you learned to read and you made annotation. Um, it was quite specific, etc. So I think all the way through the history of reading, we've had structured processes and we've we've really understood reading on a micro level in terms of letters to sounds to words and then and then the broader act of reading and how it combines with writing and how it combines with talk. I think more recently, you know, in the last um, century, particularly the last few decades, we've, you know, the science of reading has emerged. And I think that's where we've understood the likes of the simple view, where we know that word reading, decoding the words, is twinned with comprehension, understanding the words. And that simple view of reading, that careful balance, we've learned a lot about. And we know, you know, that certain approaches to that early reading development, so phonics, we've, we've learned really efficient ways to you know, read in that way and being systematic about that. And, and we know that children were able to learn to read before phonics, but actually lots of children didn't. And lots of children didn't read well. And so systematic approaches to early reading have helped us make sure, particularly for readers who are at risk of not developing reading, they had a better shot. And I think for me, I think one of the things I've really drawn out of, of all my research, and I've done it now three times for, for vocabulary language, for reading and, and now writing, that there's a real explicitness to teaching this process. It seems natural. You know, when you read and, you know, you can sit with a child on your lap, you know, your, your own little kid, or, or you can read in the classroom. It can feel so natural and, and it becomes natural. It becomes part of who you are. But actually being a novice is such a dizzying act. And if you struggle with it, it it can be bewildering. And I think, you know, we're in this conversation now, people who are listening to this um, podcast, we're the success stories. We were able to read. We probably found it natural, you know, at lots of points. And writing is the same as well. We found it to a degree natural. And, And yes, we will have been taught the structures and, you know, being given a good process. But broadly, lots of us just seem to acquire this quite well. And yet, if we're going to make sure everyone, particularly that twenty-five percent we've talked about, and those, you know, those adults who don't become functionally illiterate, we need to become more structured, really disciplined, really explicit, and really knowledgeable about the science and then the art and the craft, how we translate that in the classroom. And and it can all sound a little bit dry, you know. We need to kind of just follow this formula. I don't think it, it's ever dry or formulaic mm-hmm. because children never offer that, you know dry formulaic response it's always dynamic i think you know things like reading for pleasure you know all the engagement and the rich talk that happens about a book that you've never expected a child would read or or an idea that takes on a new spin that you never thought it would in the classroom that creativity is always there i think for me if we're going to address the reading gap then actually it's that thousands year old structured careful Mm -hmm. explicit approach that every teacher needs to be confident in. 
Certainly, and it reminds me so much of a, a quote that um, my good friend Anne Glennie shared. Um, I spoke to her for the podcast about reading in, in Scotland, and uh, I think she got it from Pamela Snow, is that uh, the phonics, systematic phonics instruction was um, harmful to none, beneficial yeah. to some, but cr- or crucial to some. I've, I've, I've absolutely butchered that, but I think the, 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 the crucial yeah. nature is for that 25% that you mentioned. Yeah. So you briefly mentioned there the science of reading and the simple view of reading. Could you share with us, what does the science of reading tell us about the, as you write, the dizzyingly complex act of reading? Um, So I think I mentioned the simple view of reading and it's paradoxical, the name. I think it's, it's ironic that reading isn't simple, but this simple model breaks it down into these component parts. Now you can start to subdivide it and think about comprehension and in different approaches. It's why we've got so many models for reading. So we've got the reading rope, we've got the reading house, we've got simple view of reading, you know, and, and, and so on. I think for me, the science of reading, it is about, um, again, breaking down the different elements. So you just mentioned, um, Anne Glenn Hughes would have talked about, again, the structures underpinning phonics and, and blending and that kind of specific processes. I think when it comes to vocabulary and reading, again, the development of comprehension has some really specific approaches. So we know, for example, from the science of reading, that vocabulary is essential to the development of comprehension. Now, on a simple level, the more words you know, the more connections you make, the richer your understanding, the easier it is to access a text because you're bringing more background knowledge to it. You're bringing more of the world to the text, to the page. So I think the science of reading tells us about processes like decoding and word recognition from a simple view. It tells us about accumulative vocabulary and how important that is in terms of background knowledge. Again, it tells us lots about how background knowledge is important and how we need to build that and try and sequence and be cumulative and how we need to activate it sometimes as well, asking the right question making sure when people are meeting a new topic, it might be photosynthesis, that we we activate their knowledge of words like photo and, and understanding of, of the natural world, because we don't expect that for the first time they'd understand straight away what photosynthesis you know, describes. So there's the science of reading indicates the importance of that cumulative development of knowledge. You know, we can c- continue. The science of reading shows that there are some poor comprehenders, so they're not so strategic when they read. So even though they can lift the words from the page, they're not synthesizing, they're not asking questions of the text, they're not checking their comprehension and repairing it, if, or un- even recognizing when they don't understand a word or a phrase. So we know, again, that pupils need to be strategic, and there are some comprehension strategies we can support that need to be quite text-specific. There are some processes that we need to be aware of for some pupils who, again, not knowledgeable or strategic. And I think a, a really important thing as well, if we start to almost you know, disaggregate reading into these component parts and better understand those parts, the science of reading gives us clues and insights and, and potential practices for each of those. I think as well, if we think about um, reading barriers and um, reading delays and issues, things like dyslexia, just mentioned you know, poor comprehension. So the reading science, again, gives us indicators why some of our assumptions about dyslexia might not be that accurate. So 
you know, we, we, the diagnosis of, of dyslexia has gone up and up over time. I'm not sure teacher knowledge has gone up and up in terms of people's barriers to reading comprehension, people's barriers to word reading. So I think the science of reading gives us this, you know, this breakdown of the complexity of reading. It, t- it shows us the barriers. It shows us the complex processes. It gives us strong indicators about what we need to do about it and the practices we can you know, deploy as, as good bets. I think perhaps where the, the science of reading is a bit weaker is about how you combine all of these things. You know, how, you, how do you juggle all the issues and, and areas that we're talking about here? Because if we think about you know, barriers, if we think about vocabulary, background knowledge, decoding, strategic reading, and then we add in the school curriculum, and then we add in a classroom of 28 pupils, all with slightly different variations of their prior knowledge and reading ability. So I don't think the science of reading tells us what to do. It doesn't give us an easy formula. It just gives us, I think, a strong basis, a necessary but insufficient guide to the challenges and supports for enhancing and developing reading. Um, and I think, you know, we've got a lot of craft knowledge about, you know, how to support people's motivation, how to manage the emotions around reading. And and reading is an effective, you know, emotive, you know, experience. And, and for children who can read successfully, they can discover so much about themselves and the world, and that becomes important. For a lot of children, we know the emotion of reading is one of frustration and that, you know, they, they face that daily. You know, you described about the classroom today. Well, you know, if we just try and walk a mile in the shoes of a people who every day doesn't have, you know, that wealth of reading fluency, they don't have the vocabulary, they don't, they don't bring the world to the classroom like some of their peers, just how frustrating that, that should be. So I think the, the science of reading t- takes us a long way, but I think there's still work to do. And I think as, as teachers, uh, understanding enough to be able to navigate the classroom is essential. I would like to see, as a, you know, as a, as a country, as an education system, where it becomes such a priority that if we think about career-long CPD, that reading and, and access in the curriculum is just driven through that. It can't just be something you learn in a few, she- few sessions at the start of your career. It has to be sustained. It has to be you know cumulative because the act is so complex. Um, and you know, I you know you've you've read and, and spoken to lots of different colleagues, and I expect you know you're juggling with that complexity of okay, well, I've read all of this stuff, so what? What do I do differently? And that that leap from kind of evidence into action, I think there's still lots of work to do on that. I think we know more from the science of reading, but I think we need to do more about practices in schools and classrooms. Certainly, and we'll, we'll, I think I'll. Um probe you on some strategies for that a little bit later on because I, I, I absolutely agree you know I've over the last couple of months I, I've dived deep into into reading and spoke to a number of people about it and then um, there's just it's so vast that you could get absolutely yeah, yeah. lost down, down yeah. the rabbit hole and so on and I want, I'm going to come back to this idea of reading comprehension that you mentioned but can we go on a little detour and can you briefly discuss for the listener the idea of of the reading wars because we've spoken about the discipline pursuit of systematic phonics but the reading wars perhaps still rage on so could you brief give give us a brief detour into that please 
Yeah, that's an uncontroversial, easy topic. Thanks. <laughs> um, so I think you mentioned earlier about um, some of the debates, the reading wars. So the quote that you you couldn't quite remember, I should remember because it's in the book. So it's about structured phonics, helpful for all children, harmful for none, crucial for some. And I think I think that that quotation is right at the heart of the likes of the reading war. So um, the the research that I'll often share is I think the best representative of the reading wars is it's called Ending the Reading Wars. Um, and we're not there yet, but I think this paper is brilliant for, for teachers understanding um, by Anne Castles and, and, and Rastel and Nation. Um, it is available online freely, which is really important. Too much research is behind paywalls that teachers can never access. There's also really good um, TES article about it. There's a good podcast about it. So if you search Ending the Reading Wars, you get this lovely distillation of it. But but the original source is so key as well. And I think what I really like about those three researchers is that they really engage with teachers and they, and they don't just, you know, write the research. They've thought really hard at communicating with school teachers and, and the system about it. And I think I, I won't do justice to ending the reading wars, but I think if I, that gives a bit of the history. And I think the recent history of, of say, the last century we've talked about, it's a bit of an Anglo um, kind of, you know, um, it's existed in the US and Australia and here. So it's existed around Anglophone countries. So the English language. And I think, um, you know, there's famous quotes from Americans about kind of phonics being pretty bloodless and that, that there should be an emphasis on reading whole words, but mainly reading literature. Um, and I think what the evidence that they unpack in ending the reading wars is it's the simple view of reading again. It's that decoding is such a careful but challenging process for children. We need to pay specific attention to it. And we've learned about doing that systematically and, and the, you know, the benefits of teaching children and with, the, with the alphabetic code. And then the aspects of developing comprehension, developing vocabulary, you know, oral language, the importance of early oral language to, to giving you those, that, those tools to access texts. So I think the ending the reading wars describes the development of the simple view, but the reading wars are these competing ideas about how you should teach reading. And I think to simplify, I think the the decoding and the phonics and the breaking down the language to its smallest component parts, the letters and sounds, and then blending and building it up. And also at the same time, I think this is this is where some of the miscomprehensions and the argument stem is. At the same time, engaging children with rich literature, reading to children, reading with children, encouraging reading at home, and and all of those rich experiences. Um, so I think there's there's one side which is about breaking it down and 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 working on phonics as as the as, as a key unit, uh, as phonemes and letters and sounds as a key unit, and phonics being a vehicle for that. And then there's a, there's a more of a whole words approach and, and an approach that doesn't see that that's important. And that's been going on for decades. There are some big hitters in that space who've kind of, you know, who've researched different aspects. I think broadly, there's a strong consensus around the simple view. You know, there's 30 years of, of good studies there that kind of show this important composite picture. So as you, as you indicated earlier, I work for the EF. If you go on the EF toolkit, it's interesting because if you look at the 
the strands particularly related to literacy, and you could argue quite a lot of them are, but phonics, um, you know, there's been a recent real huge meta-analysis and, and in looking again at those studies, and that shows, you know, the real strong efficacy, you know, of, of, of progress that, that structured phonics brings. And, and, you know, more recently in English schools, the emphasis on synthetic structured phonics, that's become the most common practice. And then also in the toolkit, you've got reading comprehension strategies. There's good evidence for that approach. And then there's oral language as well. So you can see how, you know, developing readings never one, you know, one skill mastered. It's this complex, this composite picture. Um, and I think the reading wars have often been warring factions arguing about one of the bits of the puzzle. Um, but to simplify, I think, you know, on one side, and, and a caricature to say sides, but there is that that breaking it down to letters and sounds is the important starting point. And for the other side, it's not. It's that starting with rich language, starting with with the text and 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 then eliciting understanding from that. Um, and I think it doesn't si- doesn't show any signs of stopping. So in the last week or so, you know, kind of headlines being made about a, a recent study arguing about practices in schools and and about how you know how phonics is being deployed and it's quite a political argument and i think actually that's where the reading wars are often really unhelpful for teachers mm-hmm. because they start to move away from the science which is pretty strong and well developed over time and and they start to move towards really strongly held beliefs and actually teachers who you know haven't had the time or, or the the training to really get underneath some of the claims being made last week or last year, actually, it just becomes a bit muddy for them. I, I, if I particularly think of teachers of older children, secondary school teachers, they're often just frightened by the topic, you know, and, and reading and phonics particularly. It's a bit of a black box that they just don't want to go near because people just seem to argue incessantly over it. And I think that's really sad. And I think, you know, the research community and, and I, I think, you know, Education works really well when we have that dialogue from schools to researchers. They bring expertise. Teachers bring expertise. In the likes of ending the reading wars, you can see how there's there's that positive dialogue that's been developed from it. And I think we just need to continue that and and just be wary of bombastic claims that emerge in the press about you know reading is this or reading is that. Actually, it's a pretty complex issue. And teachers should be given the support to navigate that issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and that will be the only way we will get to the end of the reading wars. Um, but it's probably a, a long way off just yet. Like you, UpLearn is on a mission to help every student realise and fulfil their potential. UpLearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that helps teachers improve educational outcomes among students, whilst reducing their own workloads. Developed by an experienced team of educators, UpLearn courses contain high-quality videos, quizzes and exam preparation material. Teachers direct students to certain sections of UpLearn as homework, facilitating flipped learning, consolidation of classroom material and independent learning. 
Uplearn leverages cognitive science and evidence-informed teaching techniques, meaning that teachers can rest assured that students are effectively engaged and supported, both inside and outside of school. Over 150 schools have seen improvements with Uplearn's cutting-edge technology, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and trusts such as art schools and the Harris Federation. 97% of students who complete an Uplearn course achieve A star or A, with many starting from D's and U's. What could yours achieve? Find out by booking a demo today at uplearn.co.uk and be sure to quote Becoming Educated for a 10% discount. That's uplearn.co.uk, U-P-L-E-A-R-N.co.uk. Now, certainly just what you said there about teachers being able to navigate that. I think that a need for ongoing training to continually yeah. learn about reading, how we how we learn to read, how the brain learns to read, what approaches are what approaches are best. And and I think what you mentioned we mentioned earlier about going way back to ancient Sumeria and how it was being disciplined all the way through. That, that happened for a reason and we need to learn from that. And you mentioned the, the huge body of, of evidence that is supporting the the systematic approach, and I think uh, being from Scotland, it, the Click Manager study uh, really sticks out for us, and mm-hmm. being being one of the landmark studies for um, kind of resulting in the, in the Rose Review and the Rose Report. So, thank you for that little bit diversion. And I mentioned I wanted to come back to to reading comprehension. So, we've spoken about decoding a little bit in this idea of phonics, but you're right in the closing reading gap that reading comprehension is the goal of of all reading, but it is complex to decipher. And we can only observe indirect symptoms of it in the classroom. So how can how can teachers develop reading comprehension in the classroom? Okay, so, so that indirect symptoms aspect is about how we assess it, how we question it, how we, we capture aspects of it. So I think ultimately the act of reading comprehension is when you've lifted words from the page, you've pieced together the words, the inferences that cross over the words, you've built a rich, full picture of what that text is aiming to communicate. And even the picture is so rich, you're connecting that text to other texts. You're making inferences and and, and generating ideas that the author may not have even intended to communicate. So whenever you're trying to comprehend, it's about painting this full picture. And, And I use different analogies for it, but I like the jigsaw analogy. So if you take you know, a jigsaw, a thousand piece jigsaw. They were kind of, they, they were big during the pandemic, were they? Um, you know, you, you're a bit strategic. You, you've got your full picture, but but you have to piece it together. You have to cluster it together, start at the corners. That all, It's almost like the pieces are that knowledge, that the, the vocabulary items that you're piecing together and you're strategic. You're building that fuller picture. And effectively, the more words you know, the more metaphors you can detect, the more patterns you can see, the more you're aware the type of genre it is, the fuller the jigsaw, the fuller the picture. And you end up with this complete picture. And and what's important about the complete picture, the more complete it is, the better your memory of, of that picture as well, the better your memory of the text, the more you can comprehend it at the moment of reading. So it's this brilliant piecing together of understanding 
this you know, this dizzying act of understanding that you're enacting whenever you read a hundred words. Uh, you know, you're reading a great novel, you're reading a, a short poem, you're reading a textbook page. Um, and I think when you think about it as a jigsaw, to, to strain the analogy, then actually then it gives you indicators about how do we build this, how do we teach this. So if we t- if we you know we've got the box and we've got all of our pieces, that's our reading diet, that's our curriculum. That's the the knowledge that we're going to communicate verbally. We're going to do lots and lots of reading, of course. We're going to read different texts. We're going to read related texts. So we need the pieces of the puzzle. And that's our curriculum. That's our reading diet. That's our reading choices. And that obviously changes through school. Lots of early on, lots of fiction, you know, some control text, some rich text being read to. And then you get to key stage two, this more independent reading. By the time you get to key stage three and four, you don't read so much fiction anymore. You read lots and lots of informational texts and their pieces have changed a bit and their, their text types have changed a bit. So the, the puzzle just keeps on moving about, keeps on changing. And so we need to identify the pieces of the puzzle. We need to carefully sequence our curriculum. We need to think about the knowledge and strategies our pupils need to deploy. And then we do have that strategic approach as well. So whenever we're reading something tricky, you know, a Goldilocks text that isn't too easy. So you're having to do a bit of work. You know, you don't know all, you haven't got all the pieces. So you're having to, you know, push through and, and, and make some predictions and piece it together. That's where we also need to, it's not just about imparting knowledge through the pieces. It's giving pupils that strategic walkthrough to piece the puzzle together. So that's where the likes of comprehension strategies, but just as simple as when we're reading a, a story in the year three classroom, or we're reading a worksheet, you know, task in science that we're asking questions. That's part of the, the being strategic about piecing together the puzzle. Over time, pupils become strategic and they become more knowledgeable and reading gets easier and easier and, and seemingly more natural. So, you know, as an adult, you can stand away and the child can, you know, piece the puzzle together themselves. But each time, in the classroom, we're looking to just increase the degree of challenge, increase the complexity of the text. So we need to step back and that's where we need to help them out. And that's where we ask appropriate questions. That's where we get them to summarize at, at complex moments. That's where we get them to stop and just you know, be aware of their comprehension and, and, and talk about it and explain what they know, et cetera. So I think if we're going to improve teaching of reading and improve reading comprehension, it is about choices about what we read and about the curriculum. It's about teaching reading comprehension strategies, but overloading with that. It's about being sensitive to each text. So if we're reading a story in year one about you know a, a cat in a rural scene, then we need to think how are we going to activate this picture for them? How are we going to you know make sure they understand this rural scene if they've never lived it, if they, you know they're unfamiliar? So there are there are choices in every classroom just before we read. What questions do we ask? What do we need to share about this world of this text? What type of story is it? What type of text are we reading? Then during the act of reading, we make those choices to to chunk it down, small steps, be explicit about some of the things they need to know and understand and remember. And then after the act of reading, that consolidation of understanding, that clarification, that checking for miscomprehension. So that's where you know we often make notes. In classroom, we often summarize, we get children to imitate, we get children to, you know, imagine themselves and empathize as characters. 
we get them to do things that consolidate their understanding and that enhances comprehension. And of course, so much of this is about that background knowledge. So over time, we need to keep on coming back to the things we've read because naturally they'll just fall away and they they won't be so important and we can't recall them. So again, there's no, I, I wish I'd give it a nice like pithy um, 30 seconds, right? We teach reading comprehension in this way, but actually it's a thousand piece puzzle and, and we need to work at it. And, it. and it's hard for us and it's hard for pupils, particularly when we're doing those complex texts in the classroom. And I think that's where we need to focus our reading instruction. Most importantly, um, we, I'm not saying, you know, outside the school gates, free reign, read wherever you like. I, we want to encourage reading choice. We want to, you know, have this rich diet of reading. But ultimately, there is a reality in terms of, you know, we want to get that curriculum communicated. And that will unlock an enjoyment and, and choices outside the school gates too. Certainly, I love that kind of analogy of of the jigsaw, and kind of goes back to what we is kind of thread right through this about the the dizzying complexity of reading. I mean, there isn't no one not one way to to improve a student's reading comprehension. But I like the, your kind of notes there on on curriculum, the the reading material that we choose, the questions that we ask to to help unlock their thinking and. and um, their own comprehension and and it kind of brings me on to this idea of academic reading because as students go through school the reading that they they do moves away from um talking reading about the cat in early years to reading about quite complex topics particularly if you're thinking about um kind of material and history or or science reports and so on and and that brings with it its own set of challenges. So what can can teachers of senior students do to encourage and support academic reading within subject disciplines? Yeah, so I think this trajectory of increased complexity um, is what we see in school. And I think in part, it's about the balance between narrative readings, reading stories, which are psychologically privileged. You know, we kind of have a... We, we have this internal grammar of stories, beginnings, middles and ends and heroes and villains that culturally, you know, we, we receive often and, and, and even outside of reading. But then when we get to informational texts, you know, texts about science, texts, you know, from, you know, geography about places in the world we've never been to, etc. Then we start to get more rare vocabulary. The text structures don't afford us as many supports. So they're not as predictable. Um, and when we get to the likes of a textbook, if I'm being really simplistic, but it's accurate too, we get bigger words and we get bigger sentences and we get more abstract concepts. So the sentences get longer, more clauses, the words get bigger. And, and one of the reasons for that is, you know, verbs become nouns. We, we have this process in academic writing and, and reading called nominalization. So words we use in daily daily conversation like sweat, well, when we're in biology or PE, we start to use words like perspire, and actually we describe the process of perspiration. So suddenly sweat becomes perspiration, and you can see how just in that micro example, this is how we get the big words in science, in geography, in PE, you know, in mathematics. And, and they're all, again, words that come from Greek and Latin, and they have common roots prefixes suffixes and and this is the history of our english language evolving over centuries becoming more complex the english language gets bigger and as children get older 
there's just that increased demand. And on the abstraction, you have concepts, you know, you in religious education, you, you know, you, you start to move to more philosophical concepts. And then in science, those those terms like photosynthesis, you know, that normalization unpacks an entire process in one word. So I think this is where, you know, what do we do about that? Well, we know that there's really good evidence for teaching vocabulary explicitly for that subject-specific language. So words like photosynthesis, we can break them down into their roots. We can spy word families. We can find predictable prefixes and suffixes. We can tell the history of those words. So explicit vocabulary instruction is one way of helping that more academic reading, but also just being really explicit. I keep on using the word explicit, be explicit. Different text types and structures. So one of the things textbooks do is they have subheadings, they have graphs, they have related images, they have glossaries. And our pupils need real explicit attention to navigating those text structures. We know that, you know, average and weak readers miss the clues. You know, they don't follow, you know, the, the appropriate, you know, trajectory of the text often, and they won't repair their comprehension. So we need to support them. It might be if we're reading a, a one-page worksheet that we've carefully adapted for them, we just get them to reread it and carefully ask questions about it. But if we're actually reading, say, a historical argument, we probably need to chunk that act of reading down. We likely need to you know, get them thinking in terms of stop points. You know, we anchor our points in the text where we you know, consolidate, check their understanding, get them writing about the text, get them making notes, asking questions. So effectively, because of the complexity, as soon as you get to extended text particularly, but not even just with science exam questions, maths questions, web problems, we need to break down the, the larger text into, into smaller chunks and build the stamina to read those longer texts. We shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't just stop reading and move to PowerPoint, you know, but we need to build up that stamina. Chunk the process down, be explicit about the different text structures, the different logical ways we communicate in history, we communicate in religious education, we communicate in science, and get right down to the vocabulary. And then again, you know, my final point around explicit, structured, even the act of note making. You know, we've got the likes of Cornell Notes, where you've got a really careful, structured process for making notes and, and leaving yourself questions to consolidate understanding. You can identify keywords. It's it acts like that, just really careful note making that that makes for that comprehension. And it's nothing new. You know, remember those, you know, the middle medieval times and those monks making those notes, they were doing the same margin notes. They were consolidating their notes in similar ways we're not the brain hasn't fundamentally changed it's it's still a complex act it was hundreds of years ago but just hopefully we've just really refined our practices and i think particularly with academic reading we know so much more about how to break it down and uh, my last point would be of course the more reading you do the more familiar you know the more the rich get richer so we have to think about reading related texts about a topic. We have to think about the reading miles we put in each week. You know, there is no, you know, it's it's a thousand piece puzzle. There is no, you know, quick, you know, you know, two minute job here. It's a cumulative act. So doing lots of reading fundamentally is key, but along the way we need to support at each step.
Certainly, so much, so much gold in there. Thank you so much. I love this idea of, of building stamina um, over time and tits, and that's aligned to you. You made a, a little little wee remark about moving to PowerPoint too quickly without children having the reading yeah. materials in front of them. I think that's so important because I think far too often um, students have to read from a read what's on the PowerPoint. Where if they can have material in front of them, it would really help. As you mentioned, that reading miles. So sticking to this idea of reading in class, something that. Um, teachers use, are using quite a lot more is, is whole class reading strategies. So what yeah. practical strategies can teachers use for effective whole class reading? Yeah, so I, I work with lots of schools, um, primary, secondary, and I think there's been a real move in the last couple of years towards back to whole class reading, um, recognising both it puts the reading miles in. You, you know, you do more reading, so for older students doing more reading in the likes of form time, you know, trying to fit more reading into curriculum time and, and outside school gates homework. I think what I've seen in terms of some of the habit changes there is we're moving a little bit away from drop everything and read this kind of, you know, just opportunity for independent reading, the child's chosen the text um, or not, you know, and there's a reality I'll come back to there. I think there's been a shift towards a lot more teacher-led reading and, and with the idea that you can have more complex text choices, you can read as a fluent reader and model the act of reading to pupils and therefore give those little supports in terms of comprehension. So I think there's a couple of things I want to identify. If you want to do reading to the class, then we want to really model fluent reading, you know, the pace the rhythm of reading, you know, the expression, all of those things matter to, and we want to model those for pupils. I think if we're doing that, it allows us to pick those complex texts. We need to be aware that pupils do need to have opportunity to read fluently themselves and read aloud themselves. So I think that's an important one, particularly for young children, but not exclusively at all. Actually, I think we stopped doing this far too early. And, and, and I think it should, you know, go into the teens in, in terms of reading aloud. It might be in small groups. It might be in pairs, you know, echo reading, reading a line after one another, et cetera. It doesn't have to be whole class. But I think when we're doing whole class reading as a teacher, we're modeling fluency, we're picking a challenging text, and we're doing those small support and repair strategies often, checking, understanding, consolidating. One of my favorite strategies, if we've read for five minutes, 10 minutes, is that just a minute. You know, we ask a people, can you summarize what we've just read? Can you, you know, can you explain the feelings of that character? That one, just a minute, synthesis, explanation, unpicking is so crucial to everyone's understanding of what's just read. We don't need to spend, you know, half an hour doing fired activities on the back of the 10 minutes we've read, but we do need to consolidate. We do need to check understanding. We do need to be explicit about that. So if we're doing whole class reading, that offers lots of support factors. If we are doing independent reading and it's drop everything and read, I think what's crucial is that quarter or more of children who don't read habitually, who don't have a book in their bag naturally because they've got a shelf of books at home, we need to support their reading choices. We need to structure this process. We need to not just support their choice. We need to model it with them. We need to think carefully about how we set up reading in the classroom. We need to think about how we're going to track what they've read and ask them those prompt questions. We might, if we feel confident with the group, work with a small group and do some focused reading with a small group and support. But I think that the, the gains of 
reading choice, you know, pupils choosing what they read can be good in terms of motivation, but we've got to be aware that the reading rich seize every opportunity and they will enjoy independent reading. The reading poor won't seize that opportunity. Mm. So we need to think about supporting every child to exercise that opportunity for whole class reading. And sometimes it's a case of we pick the text for them or we or we give a, a bounded, limited choice that can still generate that motivation. So it almost depends what we're looking for. If we want to improve comprehension, then maybe we're focusing on reading to pupils. If we want to get the reading miles in and read more, because you read more if you read silently, we might get pupils to read, but structure that. If we want to improve reading fluency, we, they need to do some practice as well as hear great models of reading. So it can come down to what our aim is and being careful and intentional and explicit about what we're after and then break it down and support it as necessary. Brilliant. So much strategies in there. Um, coming to the end of the interview section, we've explored so much uh, going right back to 4,000 years ago up to up to now and in between. And before we move on to what I call my quick first section, my last question for you then is what practical strategies do you offer for closing the reading gap that a, a school can do? A school, a whole school. Yeah. So, so I think that's why whole class reading, that's why drop everything and listen, that's why these, these approaches have caught on, because they're scalable across the school, aren't they? You, know, mm-hmm. you can think about your book choices, you can think about library stock. Um, you know, so there are certain approaches that are amenable to a whole school approach, like drop everything and listen, you know, like those those type of you know celebratory days, you know, kind of having a, a focused look at say vocabulary instruction, etc. They work at whole whole class reading uh, at whole school level. I think at a fundamental level, we started talking about the complexity of reading. Number one, step one is about professional development for teachers. Sustained professional development that's targeted, that's realistic as well. So, if you're a senior school science teacher, it's not realistic that all of your professional development time is on academic reading. So, we need to think about what a steady diet of that would be. If you're a year one teacher or an early years teacher, well, well, early language is so fundamental to everything you do. We can expect that that's a big portion of your training and development. So number one, fundamental is training time to understand the challenge. And then that's when whole school strategies make more sense. You know, how many times do we do a whole school drop everything and read and half the staff don't really buy in? Because they're not really sure how to do this most efficiently. They're not sure how it's effective. And they don't know why a couple of kids really hate this. And they're not sure what to do about it. So we can't go. I'm not going to jump to whole school strategies without first that foundation stone of professional development Mm -hmm. and sustaining that and checking it and personalizing it where appropriate. And and then I, I talk a lot about disciplinary literacy. So my background as an English teacher, the worst thing to try and do in a secondary school in senior schools in Scotland is to tell science teachers to teach reading like an English teacher. Actually, there are disciplinary differences. So you read historical sources and you look for, you corroborate those sources, you think about the author, you think about reliability. You don't do that with science textbook. You don't do that with maths problems. And then in English, you think about the author in slightly different ways. So we need to be sensitive to subject differences and train teachers appropriately at each stage. I think then I will come back to those. The the fundamental principles is about pupils need lots of practice 
of reading. So how are we going to do that? They need it broken down, scaffolded, supported. How are we going to do that? And they need some items like like decoding, like word knowledge, like being strategic. They need fluency. They need these developing. And in every school, there'll be different needs. So I'm. what I don't want to say is everyone do drop everything and listen. That's the thing. That's the secret. That's the silver bullet. Because it probably won't be. In some schools, that might be a really great starting point to get the reading miles in, to build the fluency, to make text choices that build the richness of that curriculum. That's so crucial. But in other schools, it won't be. In other schools, it might be appropriate to to focus on fluency in in another way. It might be appropriate to think about subject-specific vocabulary. It might be appropriate to focus on reading for pleasure and communicate with parents about uh, you know a steady reading diet and and how we can encourage that so yeah look, I, I, w- I won't shrink it down to a silver bullet except to say i think the foundation that I, I think we can all agree is that training underpins whatever whole school choices we pick and there are lots to pick from i don't think we're short of different approaches we're certainly not but going back to what you said at the very very start you mentioned that you see reading it there's no other alternative for a school improvement priority so yeah. if for us to be really serious about improving reading for all students and helping them those most who need that 25 percent, then of course putting reading front and center of your professional development for all staff is, is really important so thank you for that I'd like to close there in our interview section, Alex, if I may. And then I'm going to move on to our, my quick fire round, these questions that I yeah. ask ev- every guest, your responses. But before we do that, can you please direct the listeners to where they can contact you and, and speak to you about some of the themes we've yeah. discussed? Point them in the direction of where they can buy your books because they are absolutely fantastic. And and also, if if you could just point them in the direction of some of the work that the EEF do. Yeah, sure. So. Um, my web, my personal website is um, www.theconfidentteacher.com. The Confident Teacher was one of my early books, and my whole kind of career is feeling pretty unconfident about lots of these things. And so it was about that that journey towards building our knowledge and understanding. So on my website, lots of blogs, pretty much most of the topics we've talked about. Um, I dare not write about the reading wars, uh, not anytime soon, uh, but most most of the topics um are there and i'll continue to do so um and there's resource pages etc and, and you can find the books on on amazon um and on the routledge website on the eef website um so part of my role as at the eef is um to support i, I work with a team of, of colleagues who actually work in schools called content specialists so for part of the week they're in school and then they lead on literacy they lead on mathematics campaigns they lead on um learning behaviors and send so at the eef we've got a group of brilliant content specialists. And so if you go on to our guidance report page, you'll see those different areas. We've got four literacy guidance reports. So that's our kind of full fleet, really. It's got every key stage um, represented. And I think there's tools and resources that go with those. So just recently, if you if you look at the EF blog, the likes of our literacy content specialist, Sarah Green, has wrote this, a brilliant couple of blogs, actually, about reading fluency. And I know like, the first one, I think, is, thousands and thousands of readers so so there's a big appetite for accessing the evidence but also accessing the tools resources so those guidance reports come with accessible approaches and then you can go on the toolkit and and look at the phonics uh, strand the oral language you can look at reading comprehension strategies you can look at the early years toolkit which is again differentiated as well so 
yeah, there's there's lots on there, and I think the thing I'd say about literacy is well, again, we're not short of it. It's about um, finding time for colleagues to get to grips with it, to talk about it, to make sense of it, and to apply it. Certainly, and I hope podcasts like these help professionals kind yeah, of get yeah, sink, yeah. sink their teeth in. So thank you. And, and there's so much gold on the, the EF website and the guidance reports really are fantastic. And the, and the, the coming, the coming small seven steps and so on that really break it down for you as a reader. So thank you very much for that. Around Alex, I've got three questions. Um, my guests aren't sure. usually quite good at being quick, um, but we'll go for it anyway and we'll, we'll see if we go. So my first one for you there is what are you reading currently? Um, so I'm reading currently The Aristocracy of Talent. Um, it's a non-fiction text. It's about effectively meritocracy and um, and how over time that's been important for society. Um, there's a really interesting, I can't help but see it through like a teacher's eyes. So there's a lot in there about assessment. There's, there's how education has changed over time, how open society's been to education and uh, so really interesting debates and I like it. It's a great book. Well, it sounds, sounds fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. My second one is what is your current professional development focus? Yeah. So I'm not a teacher. I'm not in the classroom at the minute. Um, so I'm always, I always try and keep a, a broad span in terms of like new research. Um, as I've not long finished a book on writing, I've basically spent the last 18 months of my life reading and writing about writing. Um, and so that I just think about that a lot at the minute and, and thinking about, so that I'd say that's probably my professional development focus because, um, yeah, don't get me started on it because I'll talk a lot about it, but that's that kind of final thread and it's the, the, the other side of the coin from reading. So yeah, that, that's my current focus. Brilliant. Thank you. Can I quickly ask it? When will that book be out, the writing book? Yeah. So shameless plug. Um, so early May. Um, just sorting the cover now, so um, I'll be splashing that on uh, social media imminently. Uh, but yeah, the books, the books, pretty much done now. It's just in those like final editing stages, so it's nearly there. Brilliant! I very much look forward to getting my hand in that. Thanks for sharing, Alex. And my last question for you is: What do you love most about being a teacher and teaching? I get asked, I get asked quite a bit, do I miss being in the classroom? And I get to visit lots of schools. And it's the moment when you walk around that I do. And I think it's like irreducible kind of excitement, positivity, surprise, uniqueness that, that teaching children offers. Yeah. I, I, I work with adults all the time, but there's something just, there's an alchemy of working, whether they're, teenagers who are a bit gnarly on the surface but they're still surprised and still unpredictable still excited still interested um those 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 moments in the classroom where you just go on tangents of children learning stuff their eyes widen and i do love it with reading so if reading gave me opportunities to go to university and, and to do things like this then i love when you know you've got a book or you've got a poem and you know what's coming and they don't know what's coming and they're surprised. And and I love those moments. And if I think about, so one moment is Private Peaceful, um, the Michael Morpurgo story. So, you know, you get to the end of that book. I, I won't ruin it if anyone's not read it, but there's just a, you know, a really emotive point. And I know it, and I know it's coming. And I have to really slow down reading so I can manage it emotionally. But I know it's coming. And there's like, that, there's a shared 
seconds, minutes, when everyone feels that same emotion, that empathy, you step into the shoes, you, you're immersed in that world. And that is just like an alchemy that you just can't get in a million different jobs. And I don't have it now and I really miss it. Um, and I kind of pay money just to have that regulated. It's just, it's, it's brilliant. Oh, so much for sharing that with us. Thank you so much. Um, so that brings us to the end of, of the podcast. I'd like to thank you so much, Alex, for giving me your time on this Tuesday evening to share your thinking around reading. And uh, I've really enjoyed learning from you. Thank you. Cheers, Darren. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Educated. As ever, I would be delighted to hear your thoughts and you can contact me via Twitter at DNLeslie or via email. So that you don't miss out, I urge you to subscribe to the podcast. And while I have your attention, why not submit a review of the podcast wherever you get yours from so that many, many others can access Becoming Educated. I'll be back next week with another episode of Becoming Educated and I do hope to see you there.